Chapter 1 On the morning of Monday, November 11, 2018, Jay Wise was sitting in his cubicle at the Net Health Insurance headquarters in the Chicago suburb of Deerfield, Illinois, when an unusual sound came from his waist. Snare drums tapped a military march, then Hail to the Chief played louder in horns. Wise grabbed his phone from its case and turned down the volume. He glanced back to see if eyes peered over the walls of his cubicle. The automatic text on his phone alerted him to the incoming national security message on his computer. Shielding the monitor from passing co-workers, Wise leaned forward and opened the instant message. AG alert flashed small in orange letters, with a Reuters news article posted below. The caption beneath read, Tour bus hijacked in France 24 minutes ago. The article described the hijacking of a tour bus near Chartres, France, 90 kilometers southwest of Paris. 36 tourists were being held, all of them Americans. They were members of a church group from Tulsa, Oklahoma. The hijackers, who were later identified as Salafist militants from Tunisia, demanded the release of six prisoners in the Madia prison. Though millions read the same Reuters bulletin on their home pages that Monday afternoon, few were surprised. The United States has been fighting three terrorism wars for nearly a decade. Abductions and bombings have occurred at regular intervals. In the past 18 months, five American businesses have been bombed overseas and Americans have been taken hostage in four countries the worst attack taking place in Jakarta, Indonesia. The hijacking at Shart has since faded into obscurity, especially in light of the profound events that quickly followed. But some investigators believe it holds the earliest clues to the events that followed. With the news of each new terrorist attack, Americans expressed outrage and a sense of helplessness. Footnote. Mark Bradley, Terrorism, the New Hundred Years' War. New York Times, 17 November, 2018 Editorial. Bradley is a former Democratic U.S. congressman from Indiana who served on the House Intelligence Committee. In his article, he outlines the failures of both political parties to solve the problem of terrorism. End footnote. After years of war and thousands of casualties, successive U.S. presidents, both Democratic and Republican, searched in vain for a solution to the problem of terrorism. Sitting in his cubicle that morning, Jay Wise couldn't have known that in the days ahead, he would be called to lead. Wise read the Reuters article quickly that afternoon, by necessity. NetHealth's computer policy was strict. He'd received a final warning only weeks before, so he immediately texted Chief of Staff Alessia Thorpe, ordering a rare midweek emergency cabinet meeting. When President Wise arrived home to Naperville around 6 that evening, Dwayne Kilmer was already in the driveway, waiting in his van. The president preferred to speak with his Secretary of Defense in the Oval Office, not while Kilmer sat in a Dodge caravan with a do-it-yourself paint job depicting Lord of the Rings characters. So he walked past Kilmer without saying a word, nodding to the man in dark glasses who held his front door open. When the president heard the familiar single tap on the Oval Office door, he knew it was Presidential Secretary Stephanie Granger. Opening the door, Granger took a single step inside the room and greeted him with her customary, Good evening, Mr. President. 
She informed the president that all cabinet members were en route except FBI Director Rick Suwinski, whose son had a football game, and economic advisor Ellen Reinholtz, who attended meetings only if she could give a presentation. The president told Granger to send everyone to the Situation Room, where he would join them shortly. I always needed a few minutes before meetings to adjust to the office, Jay Wise told me. One of the hardest adjustments was his voice. After years of studying the American presidency, Wise concluded that voice was critical to success in the White House. Great presidents had great voices, he said. Jefferson, Washington. Wise described his own Chicago accent as like a beer vendor at Wrigley with a plug nose. He practiced with a recorder for a month, trying a variety of voices, searching for the right tone. He imitated past presidents, airline pilots, and football coaches, but none of those sounded presidential. I finally decided to speak the way I imagined my father to speak, softer, Wise said. He told me once that he spent most of his youth imagining what his father would sound like. By the time he was in high school, he had only one voice in mind. Part of the president's preparation also meant signing on to his system. When he did so, snare drums tapped a parade rhythm. During my interview, I picked up an interesting piece of White House trivia. The president's screensaver is a print of The March to Valley Forge by William B.T. Trago. The painting portrays George Washington's tattered troops marching through the snow. I chose the screensaver because of a trip I made to Philadelphia when I was six, Wise said. Revolutionary War reenactors were marching in a parade down Ben Franklin Parkway. Although the president's mother, Carolyn Wise, said she tried to explain the Revolutionary War to him during the parade, the naive six-year-old remembered nothing of her explanation, just the drums and the soldiers. Twenty-nine years later, Wise watched the screensaver and listened to the drums before every cabinet meeting. He said it helped him remember the gravity of his office. His deep respect for government was the reason he registered his government as Jay Wise's alternate government instead of his fantasy government. I never liked the word fantasy for a government, Wise told me. We deal with real issues. Before going to the Situation Room, the president would change into a classic indigo blue shirt and a heavily starched white shirt, the hallmark of every president's wardrobe since starch was brought to the New World. Wise modeled himself after the image of John F. Kennedy, the second youngest president and youngest of the pre-fantasy government era, whom he closely resembles in every aspect except face and hair. Wise's hair is black, and his face is long and narrow. His profile is actually closer to portraits of a youthful Lincoln than to Kennedy, and his most dominant feature, the one political cartoonist love, is a long nose with a bump and a flat spot halfway out. The president's mother describes the unusual nose as evidence of Wise's royal ancestry. Wise, she says, is descended from the Bourbon line of French kings, Charles XIII in particular, but the president scoffs at the explanation, insisting that the wide spot came from wearing glasses since he was seven. When I asked Wise about his royal lineage, he responded, Shoveling manure in the castle stables doesn't make you a royal. He paused for a few seconds, then put on his characteristically shy grin. No kings in the wise family, he added, and only one president that I know of.
When the president arrived in his basement situation room, his cabinet was watching a CNN report about the hijacking on the 54-inch LCD flat screen Wise had mounted on the wall in front of the conference table. The president asked Chief of Staff Alessia Thorpe to begin the briefing. Alessia Thorpe stood before the big screen. A large woman, Thorpe claims she can dance circles around Dancing with the Stars champion Tara Blakely. Her powerful voice, Thorpe is an experienced gospel singer, has no trouble reaching the back wall of any church. In the White House, it echoes off walls and tests the limits of the microphone and the video equipment used to record the meetings. Press Secretary Chris Newley, who was responsible for operating the equipment, played selected sound bites on the government website. The chief of staff began by summarizing all news then available on the chart hijacking. The Nelson Travel Agency in Tulsa confirmed that there were 36 American tourists on the bus, most of whom were senior citizens. The oldest was 73. The bus had just left Chartres to travel to the shrine in Lourdes, France, when it was stopped on a country highway. Four armed hijackers now demanded that the president of Tunisia release six prisoners. The hijacking put pressure on the United States and on France, Tunisia's largest trading partner. In the video, Thorpe stops talking in the middle of her briefing and shakes her head slowly as disgust spreads across her full-bodied cheeks. They just old folks, she said. Her voice raised a few more decibels, giving her the presence of a preacher. God-fearing church people. She shook her head and bit her lips. What kind of slimy little pig fucker goes after old folks? Thorpe immediately nodded toward the president, acknowledging her language. But Thorpe's colorful language didn't prompt a single reaction in the cabinet. They were used to it. Some regarded the outburst with disdain, while others found them humorous. I like when she gets riled up, Press Secretary Chris Newley told me. Adds a little drama to the meetings. Makes a good soundbite, too. Secretary of Defense Dwayne Kilmer followed Thorpe. After watching videos of 18 cabinet meetings, I noticed that Kilmer is the only member who stands every time he speaks, even if it is only to answer a simple yes or no question. Kilmer's thick six-foot-four frame fits his military role, but a sparse strawberry blonde mustache and a crew cut that lies flat on parts of his head belie the image of a war-hardened Secretary of Defense. He refused to listen to this former press secretary's advice that he shave off the few dangling red hairs he calls a mustache and let the hair on his head grow out so he could at least comb it, so he wouldn't look like he'd had recent brain surgery. Kilmer lifted a large three-ring binder with a latch and combination lock. Covering the lock with one hand, he dialed in the combination, revealing detailed drawings of weapons he'd been designing since he was a child. Sir... I have the perfect tactical weapon for the situation, Kilmer said. I designed it specifically for a hostage scenario. Which one this time? Said Director of National Intelligence Edward Hoffman from the end of the table. Your Hasbro lightsaber or the Mattel laser pistol? Hoffman's insult marked the beginning of another showdown between the two powerful cabinet members. Both are considered to be top experts in their fields. Ed Hoffman is a gifted intelligence analyst. Dwayne Kilmer has memorized the arsenals and force postures of every nation in the world. Unfortunately, there was never enough air in the room to supply the two powerful egos. Their personalities clashed from the moment they were introduced at the first cabinet meeting, almost two years prior. 
Turning his angry stare away from Ed Hoffman, Kilmer spoke directly to the president. Sir, I'd like permission to fly the weapon of France ASAP, he said. The SR-75 Blackbird, flying at Mach 3, could have it there in two hours. We could... Mr. Secretary, the president held up his hand. I told you before, we can't use virtual weapons on real people. People, Hoffman said. You remember, human beings, eyes, a nose, one set of genitals. Not like your webbed girlfriend. Kilmer's eyes lit up like the muzzle flash on a fifty caliber cannon. When he accepted his appointment as Secretary of Defense, Kilmer's online gaming identities became an immediate source of conflict. I tried to explain, Kilmer told me, but the others never completely understood. I ruled an entire warrior nation as Killian 888. For the record, Kilmer said to Hoffman, raising his voice and staring directly at the video camera, which was set up in the corner of the room. She's not my girlfriend. Victoria 616 is a cross-species warrior queen. Kilmer glared down at Hoffman. And for your information, she has never been defeated by a human opponent since her arrival on Earth three years ago. The defense secretary looked around the room, nodding silently to everyone. She can also give live birth or lay eggs, he added, which is cool. The cabinet members stared at him. Some of them squinted. What kind of sound does she make? Press Secretary Chris Newley asked. We don't need to know that, the president said quickly. Let's move on. And by the way, Kilmer said, speaking to the press secretary, I happen to have a real girlfriend, and she's an equestrian. He looked around the conference table with an air of superiority. Ed Hoffman mumbled something, but it's unclear from the video. Secretary Kilmer turned back to the president and told him his weapon was field-tested and ready to deploy. The president paused, a look of surprise on his face. He knew Kilmer, who referred to his house as the Pentagon, fought virtual wars, employing virtual weapons of his own design, but he later related to me that he didn't understand how Kilmer could actually field-test a virtual weapon. I'm sorry, he said to Kilmer. We have to use existing military weapons. It's in the rules. Wise had explained repeatedly to Kilmer that the Nationizer Fantasy Government Program prohibited governments from making up weapons. They had to work with real military assets and real government budgets. But, sir, I've... Mr. Secretary, the President said with a note of authority, we have to move on. Prior videos indicate that Kilmer could spend half the meeting describing military weapons. Believing the entire United States military arsenal obsolete, Kilmer has spent years designing the military of the future. Many of Secretary Kilmer's ideas were good, said Wise, but most were too far ahead of their time to be practical. The president turned to Secretary of State Julie Ortiz, who always sat beside him. Sitting up on the double-cushioned seat, Ortiz, who was barely five feet tall, moved her shoulders back, pressed some of her thick wavy hair from her face, and spoke in a barely audible voice. Her slight Mexican accent was acquired from her immigrant parents. According to Ortiz's mother, the family moved to Chicago when they achieved legal status, following six difficult years moving around the country. Mrs. Carmen Ortiz believes their long struggle made her daughter aware of the power of politics. 
but sent her sons in a different direction. Ortiz insisted that, before any attack was ordered, diplomacy should be used to pressure the hijackers. I have asked the UN for an emergency meeting of the Security Council, she said. UN, Hoffman grunted from the end of the table. Useless nonsense. All right, Mr. Director, said the President, cutting off the inevitable argument over the value of the United Nations. If you have a better plan, let's hear it, right now. Hoffman pushed his chair back, sweat soaking through his size 5X gray pocket t-shirt. It's simple, he said loudly. His double chin and huge chest acted like a megaphone. Give up. There were groans of disapproval all around the conference table. We need serious answers, the president said sternly. I am serious, Hoffman said. Give them everything they want, he said. Then let the hijackers go. It will ruin our foreign policy, Ortiz said. So that's your anti-terrorism policy, Kilmer said, standing again. Puffing a giggle in his cheeks, he signed a backwards L on his forehead. He smiled at the others in the room, but sat down when no one smiled back at him. You can take my advice, Hoffman said, or follow Captain Kirk and his alien porn queen. Not funny, Hoffman. Gilmer clamped his lips inside his teeth and took deep breaths through his nose. That's enough, Ed, the president said to Hoffman. We need a real plan. Do you have one or not? Here's the damn plan, Hoffman said, slapping a big hand on the table. Let him go. Then follow him. Find out who set it up and why. Ed Hoffman grunted out a puff of air as he heaved one leg up over the other. His pants rode up to nearly his knees, revealing calves covered with red spots from unhealed sores. It's your choice, Mr. President, Hoffman said. The cabinet members met for more than two hours that night. Chris Newley recorded the entire discussion, from which he would prepare a summary for the website, thenapervillewhitehouse.com. When everyone left at half past nine, the president logged his decisions into the nationizer program. He knew his decision to give in to the hijackers could be a foreign policy disaster. The AG could lose points in foreign policy and defense policy, pushing it out of the top five and ruining its chance to be the best nationizer government that year. Though Ed Hoffman was rude, insulting, and argumentative, and no one wanted to be near him for more than ten seconds, the president trusted him. Director Hoffman thinks strategically, months and years ahead, Wise said. That's why I picked him. The president didn't realize it at the time, but his unusual decision, with which the majority of the cabinet disagreed, was probably the most compelling choice any fantasy government had ever made. Intelligence reports now suggest that the hostage events leading up to the Maryland kidnappings, including the shark hijacking, were all coordinated by the same group. If Washington had followed Hoffman's plan, it might well have prevented the catastrophe that was to follow. When the president was finished in the Oval Office, he was starved, not having eaten since lunch. The 35-year-old bachelor ate alone most nights, often using dinner time to sort through the day's meal. While preparing his favorite meal, frozen lasagna on frozen garlic bread, he noticed a letter sent by J. Sykes. John Sykes was the chief of counterintelligence. 
I never met John Sykes, Jay Weiss told me. In his letter of application, which Wise had kept and gave to me, Sykes wrote that he had studied counterintelligence for 24 years. Counterintelligence, Sykes wrote, is the most important position in government. The greatest danger to any government comes from inside. Sykes offered to perform security background checks on new members of the government and check for spies and infiltrators. Wise was well aware that some people joined fantasy government for the wrong reasons. He was impressed by the enthusiasm in Sykes' letter and invited him for an interview. Sykes declined to meet, explaining in another letter that he could only do the job if no one knew his identity. Instead, he communicated by mail, providing a P.O. box as a return address. The background checks John Sykes sent were very thorough, Wise said. They stopped jokers from joining just to get into the White House, say stupid stuff, and put it on YouTube. The forms Sykes used appeared to be copies of government forms with the titles blanked out. Wise suspected that John Sykes might be a retired police officer. Retirees were active in fantasy government, especially in the Congress. That night, before opening the letter, Wise thought Sykes had sent him a report on Mark Cavanaugh of California, the newest member of the House of Representatives. But the paper inside wasn't one of Sykes' security clearance forms. It was a single-type paragraph, one that began a mystery the FBI, the CIA, and conspiracy theorists are still trying to solve. Mr. President, I have uncovered two threats to your government. I identified a mole in the White House. I also believe there is a plot to kidnap a member of the cabinet. The threats are real. Increased security. I am collecting evidence to make an arrest. J.S. CCI. I've been involved in fantasy government since I was in high school, Wise said. In every group, there are always a few people who go too far. I thought John Sykes might be one of those. The Nationizer software package included no program for the abduction or kidnapping of government officials. Not only was Wise certain the people in his government wouldn't appreciate such threats, but he was also concerned that Sykes might actually contact the FBI, which, according to Nationizer rules, would result in immediate disqualification for the entire government. That night, as he watched the late news and thought about Sykes's note, the president had no way of knowing how far the threat to his government would go.